You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Well, tonight, as I said, we're into our penultimate uh, Bible Fresh study together. After we've covered the letters tonight, we've just got one book of the Bible to finish out in, of course, the book of Revelation. And uh, if you have maybe had time to download the uh, worksheets that are available, they're still there on the website. You may want to even pause things and go and get that for yourselves this evening. I know some of you find those helpful as we've continued in this study together. I know many of you are now on first name terms with your local DPD, Hermes and Parcel Force drivers, especially since the shops were forced to shut about this time last year. And I know that these drivers who until 12 months ago were simply anonymous men who dropped packages at your back door when you were out or else left them with a kindly neighbour are now almost best friends and family members because some of you see them so often. I can almost see some of you nudging each other at home saying, that's you. But there remains tremendous excitement still, doesn't there, in opening a box that reveals something new and what the arrival of that parcel might actually mean. And as for letters, well, if you're like me, it's always nice to see post drop for your letterbox, but two-thirds of it tends to be circulars, bills, reminders, or advertisements. But there's always a particular curiosity when a handwritten letter drops through the letterbox. For you see, personal correspondence of that sort expresses time taken, effort made, and investment on the writer on behalf of the one who receives it. You know, it actually shows that the person cares. They've gone out of their way to sit down, write down, buy a stamp, give time on behalf of another person. I wonder when was the last time you sent a personal letter that wasn't a birthday card, Christmas card, or sympathy card? It becomes few and far between these days, doesn't it? It might seem strange when we think about it, but 21 of the 27 New Testament books are letters. That's around 35% of the content of the New Testament. There are New Testament letters from the apostles Paul, Peter, John, alongside letters written from the half-brothers of Jesus, namely James and Jude. The letters as they appear in the New Testament are not in time order, they're not in chronological order, but they appear to have been collated in terms of size, beginning with the longest, Romans, through to Jude, which is the shortest. It isn't a perfect science, that, because some of the books are maybe slightly longer in that order, but that's how they roughly are categorized. Paul's letters have been broken up in different ways that are quite helpful, and I just want to share that very quickly. At the start tonight, for example, there are the evangelical letters, as they're called, with a clear reminder of the gospel in a very logical fashion, usually in response to a crisis of confidence or conflict in a local church. Those letters are Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and Galatians, which seem to have been written by Paul on his third missionary journey. Then there are Paul's prison letters, which you'll see from the screen, are Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, written by Paul when he was in jail, either in Rome or in Caesarea. First and Second Thessalonians appear to have been written when Paul was also on the move. And then there are the pastoral letters that deal with specific needs amongst Paul's younger colleagues in ministry, such as Timothy and Titus. And interestingly, Paul's letters must have received such mass circulation towards the end of the first century that the apostle Peter himself even 
by that stage, begins to refer to Paul's writings as Scripture in 2 Peter 3, verse 16. And up to that point, only the Old Testament was referred to in that way. But why letters? Well, that's the first thing we need to address, if you'll excuse the pun. But here's the first thing. It's the best means of communication. If you had followed our whirlwind tour through the book of Acts last week that David brought us on, you would have seen how the gospel spread out from Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when people from all over the known world responded to Peter's message of God's fulfillment of the Old Testament, the need for repentance from sin, salvation through Christ, and his glorious resurrection. And families from those far-flung corners of the Roman Empire went back to their homes, having been converted, and were now disciples of Jesus. And then as the apostles followed the Lord's command, witnessing to the name of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, well, they were following and being obedient. Jesus said, go, and they went. Jesus said, make disciples, and they did. So by the end of the first century, due to the apostles' obedience, little churches had sprung up all over the empire. And so the apostles, such as Paul, Peter, and John, needed to find ways of supporting these baby Christians as they took their first steps into a pagan society and a difficult community. You've got to remember that Paul left behind these elders who maybe only had been Christians for 18 months, two years, and maybe were only a Christian three or four months more than the people they were trying to lead. So they needed help. They needed guidance. They needed a support structure. Let's remember also these churches would have heard the gospel, but they would have not yet received the New Testament gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see, Paul's letters were circulating almost at the same time as those letters were being written and finished. They were still in the early stages of being circulated. So the Christians were in great need of something written down that they could turn back to to stimulate them, to encourage them. To one part of scripture they did have that I've already referred to was the copy of the Old Testament. And that is why we must never disregard the Old Testament. For the early church, that was all they had that led them to understand clearly who the Messiah was. It led directly to the Savior, highlighting God's patience with his people and covenant faithfulness to the faithless generations who'd gone before. The early New Testament church leaned almost exclusively on the Old Testament for their knowledge of God. Whether Paul had spent two years or two days preaching to people in a particular city, they still needed assurance, and they definitely needed encouragement. You know, we have a wealth of communication options available today. Snapchat, Instagram, email, WhatsApp, Zoom, Teams, FaceTime, telephone, video calls, and letter. But in the first century, if you wanted an important message carried from village to the next, it would be done either, first of all, by town criers, who went into the town centre and called out in the marketplace the news from the last town, or you could hire out professional actors who went from town to town sharing the news. It was, must have been a fascinating thing to see. If, if, if a battle had been lost... And the news of that needed to be shared with a particular area that actors and actresses went town to town, village to, and acted out what happened in battle. But the early church needed an inexpensive means because they couldn't pray for professionals. 
And whilst there wasn't an official imperial postal service for the government, letters tended to be carried usually by friends, employees, soldiers, business travelers who were on the move across the empire. This appears to have been the means that Paul used most exclusively because in many of his letters, he references the carrier and how to look after them when they arrive. That's one of the reasons I read from Romans 16. If you haven't your Bible open, why not grab for it again just now? And look at Romans 16 verses 1 and 2 in particular, where Paul writes, I commend to your sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. You see, it seems very likely that Phoebe was entrusted with this task of carrying Paul's letter to Rome. And although other business appears to have taken her to the city, she was probably, you know, a traveling salesperson. She was there on business. And Paul gave her the letter and asked her to deliver it to the saints of God in Rome. So she carried this letter of recommendation because that proved that she was genuine. And these letters of introduction that Paul attaches to the letter of Romans, well, it avoided what would have been first century scammers, people landing on your doorstep pretending to be someone sent from someone else, and that wasn't true at all. So this letter proved the genuineness of Phoebe's arrival. And in his introduction to Phoebe, Paul asked the Roman church to both receive her and give her a Christian welcome. They didn't know her. They'd never met her before. She was a stranger to them, but Paul says she's a sister in the Lord. And I just love Romans 16. Despite all the names that are hard to pronounce, that sense of interconnectedness. Already at that stage in the early church, people from different towns and cities who love the Lord, interconnecting, interrelating, different walks of life, but one in Christ separated by class and culture and gender and employment and upbringing, but they're united in Christ. And how thankful we must be today to Phoebe, the deacon, this faithful servant of Jesus, and one who was loyal to her pastor, Paul, that she delivered this letter, which is often regarded as the loftiest and most glorious theology in all of the New Testament. Without Phoebe, we wouldn't read that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Or that neither life nor death, nor things present or things that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God through Christ. We thank Phoebe because she carried this faithfully. Another character we can celebrate as well is Tychicus. You don't need to turn this up, but Tychicus appears at the end of Ephesians, that wonderful letter that we looked at last summer. And in Ephesians 6, verses 21 to 22, we read Tychicus, the dear brother, faithful servant in the Lord will tell you everything so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending unto you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. There's a strong suggestion that Tychicus only carried this letter to Ephesus, but he also had the opportunity to explain it. So as he read it out loud, he had literally arrived at the church in Ephesus, probably in someone's front room, and he would have, he would have opened it and he would have read it on their Sunday gatherings. But as he read it, people were allowed to interrupt them. Hey, Tychicus, what did Paul mean when he said this? Or what was he referring to when he mentioned that? So it moved from just a Sunday sermon into an interactive Bible study. And if it's not pushing it too far, and although we know so little about Phoebe and Tychicus, what we do know was that they were of great help to Paul and humble servants of Jesus. Their job was not glamorous. They weren't in the spotlight. 
Their testimonies weren't being fought over Christian magazines or in the God channel, and they weren't being asked to share their story across the empire. No, they were delivery men and delivery women. I love Romans 16. I love Ephesians 6. Ordinary people who made themselves available for the good of the church. I love the Phoebes and Tychicuses, if I can use that name, of our churches. I love the get on and do, no fuss, how can I help men and women in Union Road in the comfort. I thank God every day for you. Those who just get on with it, those who are asked and they do offer and they do respond. Those who, whenever things are allowed, travel with work or take the gospel of grace or the news of our Lord Jesus, wherever they are in, wherever they go to, even tomorrow into the workplace. And you see, these letters would have been read in public worship settings. The young church would have gathered, individuals, families, all there, and they would have heard this read. They'd have heard what the apostles were saying to them. And you see, once they were read, the letters would have been carefully copied onto yet another papyrus roll and sent on to the next town and to the next house church, enabling each gathering then to refer back to what's being said. Do you ever stop and think about that? Once you've got something on paper written, you can go back to it. And it's funny, that's exactly what someone said to me last week. I was a member of our Le Comfort congregation, and we were talking on the phone, but she said, you know, you sent me a card a couple of weeks ago, and it's lovely because I can go back and reread it as if you're speaking to me again and again. Reassuring words, but they could be read over and over again. You see, in order to share the good news of Christ and explain what it meant to local churches and for ordinary Christians in their day-to-day -day lives, these letters were the best means of communication. And here we are still sitting looking at them today. Which leads us on secondly to the fact that these letters were all written for a reason. They were all written for a reason. Now remember these were the very early days of the distinctive Christian faith. We need to get our heads around this. Christians were a brand new phenomenon in society. Imagine this, to hear men and women singing the praises of a carpenter from Nazareth who had been crucified and who then shared in a meal to remember his sacrifice for sin by calling the bread his body and calling the wine his blood made these Christians sound like freaks and cannibals. Or as they referred to each other as brothers and sisters, it almost sounded incestuous. And to worship Jesus as Lord, we don't realize how mind-blowing and how revolutionary that is to sing of someone who was Lord who was not the Caesar of the day could easily result in death. You see, they were treated suspiciously, and they were treated as rebels. You see, the Greeks or Gentiles considered the Christians as unlearned and foolish. Imagine celebrating the death of a carpenter. Whilst the Jews considered the Christians as blasphemous and dangerous, imagine celebrating the death of a carpenter. Christians were misunderstood. Christians were persecuted from without and they were often unsettled from within. And our challenge as 21st century readers of these letters is that we only get to hear one half of the conversation. You know what it's like if you walk into a room and someone's already on the phone. You know, yes, absolutely. And the person who just walked in is thinking, 
What are they saying yes to? Of course, that won't be a problem. What was the problem in the first place? Hmm, I'm not sure that would work. How do they know it won't work? And what are they talking about? No, I don't think she's the best person for that job. Well, who are they talking about? You only get one half of the conversation. And there's something of that frustration as we do read the New Testament letters. We only get Paul's side of the conversation. But if you read through the letters really carefully, you can begin to piece clues together and discover something of the other side of the conversation. I'm going to give you almost like a case study, an example this evening. Corinthians, Corinth. The church at Corinth was a mess. It was disordered. They were wowed by big-name Christian celebrities who jetted in and then cleared off. And the believers became increasingly uninterested in an ordinary man like Paul or what he had to say and the day-to-day implications of the gospel in ordinary life. They were always looking for something more. There was a fight for recognition, but while they fought to be recognized, they forgot Christ. That's why I read from 1 Corinthians 13. Because 1 Corinthians 13 is not the New Testament love poem for weddings and Valentine's Day, but it's how Christians are actually meant to relate to and respond to one another. Let me just pluck one out. If I have faith that can move mountains, wow, we'd all love that. Some people pray like that. Let's have faith that can move mountains. But if you have not love, Paul says you're nothing. Galatians is another good example. Galatians is referred to simultaneously as the angry letter and the freedom letter because Paul cannot believe how quickly the Galatians had fallen back into the rituals of the Old Testament law and that had already been fulfilled in Christ. If you do have your Bible there, turn with me to Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7. Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7 where we read together there, Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7, right at the start, Paul says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. You can almost sense Paul's frustration here. Paul fumes at this gospel plus heresy that has come into the church. You know, this is what was being said. They were saying things like, to be a true Christian, you must turn from your sin to Christ, which was fine and right, and then you must do this. You know, today it might be, you must wear a suit on a Sunday, or don't wear a suit on a Sunday, or you can't go there, but you must go there. You've got to look this way you've got to be involved in this outreach. You've got to talk in a certain style. You've got to pray in a certain way. You've got to get the vaccine. Oh, don't ever get that vaccine. Use this Bible version. Don't use that Bible version. All the kind of things that Christians fall out over and prioritize over the central tenets of the faith, making them seem superior to others, judging others by their standards instead of the standards of Christ. Now, I know for a fact that so many of us in our two congregations would get worked up and blow our top if anyone came and preached in our pulpits and we did not give the full gospel. In other words, if we said, oh, you know what, if you just kind of, if you live a good life, 
if you just kind of try and live by the Ten Commandments and don't worry too much about Jesus and the gospel and repentance and just, just live a good life. You know, act like a Christian kind of way and you'll be okay. All our folks rightly would say that's not right. That's gospel minus, which is no gospel at all. But what Paul is saying here, gospel plus is no gospel at all. The very moment you add to the gospel, you are denying the gospel. And Paul says that in Galatians 5 verse 4, or verse 1 rather. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. You know, we cannot lose our salvation, but we can all too easily lose our freedom and be enslaved to fear. Fear of what everyone else seems to be doing, thinking, saying. The unhelpful jostling of Christian pressure groups who force us down one way or question our salvation if we don't think as they do. Friends, it's our conscience before God. The Gentile Christians were being pressured by the Jewish Christian pressure group saying you've got to be circumcised. But that's gospel plus. And so that was leaving the Gentile Christians scratching their heads thinking, was Jesus' death and resurrection not enough? Was Jesus lacking something? Which leads to Christian fear, and it robs us of Christian freedom. See, the letters tell us one thing clearly. We are to be like, or seek to be like no one else except for Christ. We need to work hard to pick up on the nuances in each letter, and it is harder to pick up some than others. But as we move on thinking about they were all written for a reason. The one thing we notice above everything else, and this is the one thing, I love the fact Scott drew this out in his interview tonight, is the centrality of the local church. I wonder if you ever thought about that. Most of the letters were written to actual local churches in real time facing real problems. Directed by God's Holy Spirit, Paul writes to the believers in Rome that he had never met. He writes to the friends in Philippi, people like Lydia and the Roman jailer, whom he knows and loves. He's been in their homes. He's laughed with their families. He, he wants what's best with them. He writes a general circular letter to Ephesus that he trusts will then be shared by the, the neighboring churches in Laodicea. He encourages the believers in Thessalonica who are having it tough, but whose lives are ringing out as a gospel witness across the whole region. Paul is passionate about the church, a church that's well taught, a church that remembers its priorities, a church that is not swayed by silly controversy, a church that has warned off heresies, for he knows that when people get together, there'll always be problems. Yes, saved sinners still sin, but what Paul does, even as he and John and Peter write more personal letters towards the end of the New Testament, is always rooted in the context of church life. Folks, I want you to hear it from me, your minister, who loves and is passionate about God's plan for the local church. The local church is one of the hardest places to minister to because it's day in, week in, week out, slog, graft amongst ordinary people like you and me. And here's the thing. You and I don't get a choice into which family we grew up in, as it were, the church. It is here amongst these people that we learn to love and be like Jesus. Jesus said something very curious, didn't he? 
whenever he confronted Saul on the road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, Jesus from heaven said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus, was he? He was persecuting the church. He was only persecuting Jesus' followers, except that Jesus takes it personally. He identifies himself so closely with his people that if we speak ill of the church or do harm to the church, we are speaking ill and doing harm to Jesus. This is a truth that dominates the rest of the New Testament and is seen in all the letters that Paul writes. That's why he writes them. He wants these churches to be beacons of hope, kingdoms of hope all across the empire. Let me give you a number of implications of these local churches and the fact that Jesus is the head. Here's the first one. If Jesus is the head, then he goes first. You ever thought about that? The head always goes first, doesn't it? Just as he went through death and was resurrected, that means those of us who are part of the church will follow that same glorious path. Secondly, within this, if we are united to the head, then we really are at one with Jesus. In fact, we are so close that we are in Christ. And that's Paul's favorite phrase, isn't it? He uses it over a hundred times in his letters. We're in Christ. We're so closely bound up with Jesus. Thirdly, if we're in Christ, then what is true of Jesus becomes true for believers as well. He is the Son of God. That means we become children of God. He is the righteous one. It means we become righteous in him. God cannot separate the body from the head, Jesus from the church. We're inseparable. And if we are the body of Christ, as Corinthians reminds us, then every believer is a member of that body. We are not all the same, just as hands and legs and feet are different, yet united members of the same body. Christians are called to be different and yet united members of the church. We belong to each other and use our gifting to serve each other in love. And if our union with Christ finally means union with his body, then solo Christianity cannot exist. You know, a, a dismembered hand is no use to a body. Christians who try and go it alone are of no use to the church and have no blessing in Christ's kingdom ultimately. Glenn Scrivener reminds us, this last point is why Paul's labors were aimed almost exclusively at establishing churches and his writings were intended almost exclusively to encourage churches True Christianity does not produce individual believers so much as a faith-filled body that represents Christ to the world. Jesus has a big vision of the church. God has a huge view of the church, and so must we. And that is why the letters were written for the health and strengthening of the only society that will actually exist in eternity, the church Investing time and love and patience and money and talents in the local church is never wasted. Despite how frustrating it might be, oh, we need volunteer, or we could do with this, or we really need more of that. You know what? Jesus has no plan B. He's saving the world through the outreach of the local church. And that means when it comes to reading the letters finally tonight, well, not quite finally, but that's what Paul usually says, isn't it? Thirdly, requires careful attention. 
Some people see it as a weakness or a lack of dependence upon God's Spirit. But I would urge all of you at home there to invest in a really good Bible dictionary or a really decent Bible commentary. And as you read the letters of Paul, do your homework in the background. Ask important questions before you dive in. Where was Galatia? What would it mean to live in first century Corinth? What local illustrations does Paul draw upon to make that city, from that city to make his point? When does Paul visit these people in Acts? Does he visit these people in Acts? What was the reaction? We need to remind ourselves that these letters are of their time and written in a particular context. It's of great benefit to remind ourselves of the political tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles, the tribal groupings of the day, the societal background of slaves and masters and freedmen, discrimination between men and women and how children were treated, all of which feeds into our reading of especially letters like Colossians and Ephesians, where Paul addressed those relationships directly. Remember when we did that way back last summer in Ephesians? Ephesians chapters 1 to 3. Mind-blowing, breathtaking heights that Paul takes us to of the fact that God has loved us from eternity past with an unending and never-failing love. But he moves from chapter 3 into chapters 4 to 6 when suddenly it moves to, well, how do you live that out? Whose we are determines how we live. A Christian man in Christ is to love his wife in a sacrificial way. A Christian slave in Christ is to serve his master in a sincere way. You see, the great doctrines and truths of the gospel that Paul explains are not just for information, but total transformation. Which does lead to my final point, which comes as a call from 2 Corinthians. As I finish tonight, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Just verses 1 to 3. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 3, where Paul writes, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you're a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. The background here is that some incomers to the church at Corinth had become very critical of Paul and his ministry. And so Paul is defending himself and the work that God called him to do. And Paul describes the Corinthian Christians as letters written on his own heart. These people meant so much to Paul. But also he says the Corinthian Christians are like open letters read by everyone. And they make clear, verse 3, that they are a letter from Christ the result of Paul's ministry. Just as others in the city of Corinth look at these Corinthian Christians, th th their lives are to be read like, a, like an open letter lying on a table. Th these Corinthian Christians are to talk differently. Their work ethic is to be different. Th they're to have a love for one another. They have a heart for those on the edge of society. Their hearts are fixed on the here and now, but they live with a real anticipation for the future. D just think of a husband watching his wife. Something has changed in her since she started meeting on the first day of the week with this group of people called Christians. She seems to really relish her responsibilities at home and with the family now. She rarely complains. Her life has changed. And it's not the words that she uses that's caught her family's attention, but it's her behavior, her gentle, quiet, determined spirit. And this family cannot avoid seeing the change because they eat with it, sleep with it, work with it. They see it. And in a city like Corinth, 
A lady like that would really stand out where there's paganism, immorality, violence, cruelty, social disintegration. Here she speaks through her life. Early church writer Oregon said, Everywhere I go, Christ is spoken against by the leaders, and what Christ stands for is considered a threat to the government and to other religions. Yet the glory of Jesus Christ is shining in the lives of ordinary men and women, and numbers are every day being converted because they see the glory of Jesus in the flesh and blood of ordinary men and women. Not beautiful. It's not marvelous, the glory of Jesus seen in the flesh and blood of ordinary men and women. You don't need to be like a Paul. But maybe you need to be more like a Tychicus or a Phoebe. And if the Corinthians are likened to letters, the writer, the author, the sinner, look at verse 3 again, the author of this letter is from Christ. Their new life is a written communication from Jesus to the city of Corinth. Paul simply delivered the letter that was sent from Christ, bearing his seal and stamp of authority all over it. The words of God no longer remained on an ancient piece of stone like the Ten Commandments, but the words of God had penetrated the heart, the center of the life. Something radical had happened, no less a spiritual heart transplant. Dr. Christian Barnard, the first surgeon ever to perform a heart transplant, impulsively asked his very first patient, Dr. Philip Blayberg, would you like to see your old heart? So at 8 p.m. on the subsequent evening, the men stood in a room in that Johannesburg hospital. Dr. Barnard went to a cupboard, took down a glass container, and handed it to Dr. Blayberg. Inside the container was Blayberg's old heart. For a moment, he stood there in stunned silence, the first man in history ever to hold his own heart and still be alive. And finally, he spoke. And for 10 minutes, he plied Barnard with lots of technical and medical questions. And then he turned to take a final look at the contents of the glass container and said, this is my old heart that caused me so much trouble. And he handed it back, turned away, and left it in the cupboard forever. Folks, that is a window into what God has done for us in Christ. We have the same name. We look the same. It's still us. But our hearts have become radically new. The Spirit of God has taken the Word of God and written it on our hearts. And now it's fleshy and warm and living and vibrant and real. And maybe some of us need to do some heart searching tonight. Maybe we need to go on that spiritual ECG machine to see what God has written on our hearts. When the good news of Jesus Christ comes to us, and whenever we truly grasp its message, it does transform everything. Our hearts, our minds, our actions, our reactions, our plans, our relationships, our attitudes to sex, to money, to time, to the poor, the rejected, our enemies. When the Word of God, the Gospel, coupled with the Holy Spirit, collides with our hearts, life changes. Could it be said of our lives that they are open letters written by Jesus? And so as we read the New Testament letters, let me urge you to look out for relationship rather than rules. Please be careful about reducing the New Testament letters and teaching to a list of rules. There's an understandable habit since we always look to Scripture for guidance, but the letters in general invite us to go beyond rule-keeping 
but rather to go in relationship with God and relationship with one another, all by the Holy Spirit's help. Unity and diversity. Perhaps it would be better to treat all of these letters as love letters from God in which we learn more and more about the one who has loved us and given himself for us. I'm going to invite the praise team just to join me at the front again. But as they do, so let's just have a moment of quiet as we turn to God and prayer quietly ourselves and reflect upon what we've heard tonight and how we read these letters and if we ourselves are true living letters that others can read, written from Christ, sent into this world. Thank you.